Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 4. The legacy of Cain and Abel. Today, we move past the account of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, and into the first generation of their posterity. And it is another well-known account, but more than just a history of the children of Adam and Eve, uh, much more, in fact, than that. It is uh, significantly more than that. It's another step in the process of introducing the history of humanity, tracing its moral and spiritual development. And really all, in, in one sense, of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are that. They are a history of those things which happened, as we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, and why it is that we would believe it to be a history and not necessarily just allegory or myth, but then not just history of Adam and Eve and of Cain and Abel and of Noah and his sons, but a history of, of the, 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 the advent of humanity, of why humanity is the way it is, why we are the way we are, how we got here, and where we are going, tracing the moral and spiritual devel developments of humanity. So in chapter 3, the direction of humanity was charted in Adam's rebellion, in the curses upon man, in the curse upon women, uh, woman, and then in the curse even upon the created world itself. So mankind has now died, right? It is dead in its trespasses and sins. Man is cursed. He is cursed not in that he is given work, but he is cursed in that now he will have to toil greatly for his daily bread, that the earth will resist him, that thorns and thistles will grow, and that all of these things will be a part of the, the, the process of him providing for himself and for his family. Woman is cursed in this heightened pain in childbearing, and uh, that, that uh, process of childbearing will now uh, be a greater burden upon her. And life under these new circumstances is now commencing. Now, as we talked through the fall of man, we already saw the cause and effect of sin upon this world. That sin brought spiritual death, and we know this happened because of the effect of sin. We talked about that last time. Namely, uh, that they uh, saw that they were naked, and they were ashamed, and they went and they hid themselves, and so they felt fear and shame for the first time. And we saw in that the immediate effects of this separation from God, this fall from virtue, the fear that compelled them to hide their face from God, and the shame of their nakedness. And this is an important theme which carries even to the hearts and lives of humanity today, as we considered last week. That the actions that we commit, which we would call sin, are actually the fruit of something much deeper in the human heart. That the fact that Adam and Eve felt shame and went and hid themselves, felt fear, went and hid themselves, the fact that they hid themselves, the fact that they clothed themselves, were visible manifestations of something that was happening in their heart. There was a deeper problem in their heart that was manifesting itself in clothing themselves and manifesting itself in hiding themselves. So the action of hiding from God was the fruit of the shame and the fear that they felt. And we're going to see the same thing today with Cain and Abel. What we're going to consider is a terrible act, namely the record of the very first murder. And this in and of itself is a terrible thing for, of course, reasons that we will explore. But it also progresses the narrative it progresses the theme of tracing this important pattern of cause and effect between the human heart, which is dead in sin, and the actions that we commit. And in doing so, we lay the foundation, even now in Genesis chapter 4, for what Jesus would tell us as he walked on earth some 4,000 years later. That it is not enough for us just to clean the outside of the cup, 
The inside needs to be cleaned. It is not enough for us just to paint the outside of the tomb if the inside is full of dead men's bones, right? We are starting that theme even now, that, that, that the outworking, that the problems as they manifest themselves in our actions are not just actions. They are rooted in a problem in our hearts that needs to be fixed. And my plan is to take several weeks on these verses. You see here it says the legacy of Cain and Abel, part one. Today we will learn what the text is saying. Then over the next couple of weeks, we'll consider the implications of this account, the implications upon our understanding of humanity, upon human history, upon our lives individually, and, this, and such. So what I'd like to do is begin by reading the entire passage, the eight verses together, and then we'll start walking through them, understanding them bit by bit, and laying that foundation for all of the, the things that we'll talk about over the next several weeks. So Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, the Bible says this, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process, in process of time, excuse me, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not Respect And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thou, thou thy... Con- Let's try that again. And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. So that's the passage. Let's dig in. I'll read again verses 1 and 2. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we find that Adam and Eve unite in marriage union and produce children. And we talked about this a little bit in the nature of the concept of marriage, that that God has ordained marriage to be a procreative union. And we see that the very first thing following Adam and Eve's fall is that they begin to have children. That is one of the, the, the foremost and fundamental purposes of the concept of marriage to, to start a family, to have children. And the text tells us that Cain was born first, then Abel. And the text does seem to imply that these were the first of Adam and Eve's children, that Cain would have been the firstborn son and, and, and Abel would have been the nextborn son. Though this isn't necessarily the case, there are reasons within the text, and we'll talk about them a little bit more uh, as we come through the text, where this is most likely the case. It is possible, of course, Um, that this is not the case. A little later in the chapter, we're going to see uh, that Cain bears children, and this means that he took a wife and naturally would have done so from someone else that was there at the time, one of the other children of Adam and Eve. Now, beginning with the law of Moses and then continuing to this day, there is a general moral prohibition against uh, having children with close Relatives, and, and we see this prohibition both biblically and otherwise as one, as far as we would understand it today, primarily rooted in what we would call today genetics, that there is a much higher propensity for genetic abnormality when you have children with someone who is very closely related to you. But of course, among the first generations of mankind, there were no gener- uh, uh, 
genetic abnormalities, right? Uh, if you make a copy of a copy, the first copies are generally quite faithful. If you go up to a copy machine with something you've printed and you put it on the copy machine and you make a copy of that, then that is going to be a generally faithful reproduction. But then if you take that copy and you put it on the copy machine and you make a copy and you take that copy and you put it on the copy machine and you make a copy, over time there's going to be um, in, imperfections that begin to show up in the copies of the copies of the copies. And that's because maybe a piece of dust gets on the, the, the image machine or as, um, as it picks up various elements of of the sheet, uh, it gets a little bit darker, and then that darker gets a little darker, and so it's getting darker and darker and darker with subsequent copies. All sorts of reasons why um, copies of copies of copies of copies, there are more errors that, that, that come into the system. So we see that with humanity as well, that as we make copies of copies of copies of, of our genetic material, of our DNA, that um, those copies of copies of copies introduce into the gene pool flaws and problems. And um, typically speaking, one of the ways that we weed out those flaws and those problems is that when we unite with someone else and our DNA mixes with their DNA and our children, um, that the hope and, and the desire is that our children would have the the, the, the proper DNA and that it wouldn't carry forward the genetic abnormalities. However, if you and I both have the same genetic abnormalities, then it's very, very likely that our children will carry forth said genetic abnormalities, right? And, and so there are these reasons why um, the Mosaic Law and then many laws and, and principles throughout time have morally prohibited uh, the union of, of close family with each other and having children together. But either way, we understand that Adam and Eve must have had some female children in Cain and, and uh, for Cain and for Seth to have wives and then to propagate the human race. The next natural question is then, oh, well, why doesn't the Bible talk about all of their children? And later in history, we'll see a more thorough record of the number of children that uh, any given man had. But here's the thing. We'll find in the next chapter that Adam lived to be 930 years old. And throughout that time, the Bible says he had sons and daughters. Now imagine how many children men and women might have if they lived to be 900 years old. Imagine how big our book would be if there was a record, uh, a complete genealogical record of all of people and their children and their children's children. Um, it would be a very, very, very big book. To that end we find a particular trend that will continue throughout the Word of God. And you'll see this in genealogies uh, all around the, the Scriptures. And that trend is that those genealogies only hit the highlights. They trace the men and the women who, in some way, shape, or form, bear consequence upon the future generations. They'll skip entire generations. They'll skip uh, the generations that are of no consequence. And that sounds harsh and mean and cruel and whatever else that uh, if you were looking through a genealogy of your family and you're not there and you say, well, why aren't I there? Well, because your generation didn't matter. So we just kind of skipped you and we moved on uh, to, a, to a consequential generation, right? And you'd say, wow, that's not very kind. That's not very nice. But, but, but it is the fact of the matter that there are certain generations of history that just don't really factor into history as a whole, right? For one reason or another, that generation, maybe, maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe you were so successful and you had peace in your days that because you were so successful and there were peace in your days, nothing really happened in your days and you got to go to the grave in peace. And so your generation just 
wasn't eventful. That's not a bad thing, right? It's, it's just a thing. It is, it is a thing. And so if we're, if, if we're skipping a generation for one, for one reason or another to, to save space or, or for, for, um, for the sake of not cluttering up our narrative, we're going to skip maybe those more successful generations because those suce- successful generations were not eventful generations, right? So it's not necessarily a, 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 um, a, a, a statement to anything negative. It just is what it is. Certain generations would be skipped. So we trace through the more imperative generations. To that end, we would say we don't know if Cain and Abel were actually firstborn, but we do know that Cain was older than Abel, and I suspect that Cain was the firstborn son, and you'll see why as we continue through the narrative. So the text then tells us that Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Abel was a shepherd, and Cain was a farmer. Verses 3 through 5. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So the text then fast forwards indicated by the phrase, in process of time, to those days when Cain and Abel were old enough to be actively engaged in their respective endeavors of shepherding and farming. And here we are introduced to something new once again, that Cain and Abel brought offerings unto the Lord. Now again, put your, shoe, put, put your, your, your feet into the shoes of one who is learning all of these things for the first time. They've never read the Bible before. They're reading the history of mankind, and they start at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and they're reading through it. If we were to have done that, what we would find is that there is something new happening here, that for the first time within the the, the record or within the narrative, we see men who are taking something which is theirs, and they are giving it to God. Right? They are taking something that is theirs and they are offering it to the Lord. And here we find the first glimmers of the concept of worship. That a man regards that there is an authority above him, that he desires to be in a right relationship with that authority or express his submission to said authority. And so he takes something that is his something that is important to him, and he lays it at the feet of that authority as a way of showing both submission and as a way of showing reverence. Not just relationship, but worship. An aligning of themselves under the authority and giving to them as a manner of expressing the worth of that authority in their eyes. So we see this for the first time. This is the first concept of worship that we find in the scriptures. And that worship is in regard of taking mine and yielding it to another. Hence the title worship or worship, expressing the worth of another. So Cain brings of the fruit of the ground and Abel brings of the first of his flock. And we might expect this, right? Each person is bringing something of theirs, the fruit of their own labor to the Lord. But then we find something interesting, and this is going to dominate one of our sermons that's coming up here. And the interesting thing is that the Bible says that God respected or accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's offering. 
And we have, we'll discuss next time we're together why this was. What was it about Cain's offering? And we're going to need other principles of Scripture. At this point, we don't have any reasons. All we have is facts, right? That God accepted Abel's offering, that God did not accept Cain's offering. So all we have is facts at this point. And the Bible tells us that Cain was very angry at this. And we know that because it's, the Bible says Cain was very wroth. And then it says his countenance fell. And you've seen this before, right? Where a person is angry or sad or disappointed or whatever it might be. And you know this even without them saying anything because of the noticeable change in their expression, right? Um, and, and the concept of a face falling is a concept of disappointment or of anger. And you've seen this before too, where someone is, is just doing their thing, they're living their day, maybe they're even excited or happy, and then they get a certain bad news or they hear the results of something that they've been waiting for, and it's like their face just falls, their expression falls, their eyes uh, uh, droop, and, and their face sags, and, and, and they frown, which makes the face naturally turn downward. And that whole process of, uh, of their, their expression changing, maybe their brows furrow, their eyes change shape slightly. It's amazing how truly expressive our faces are. And Cain's face reflected his anger at this circumstance. And God confronts Cain about this. So we read in verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So God confronts Cain about his attitude and his anger, and he's reasoning with him about why he is angry. First, he asks this. He says, will you not be accepted if you do well? And this gives us insight. What we know then is that something about what Cain did was not right. It was not that God was playing favorites here. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what God is saying he's not doing. God is not saying, well, I like your brother and I don't like you, so I'm going to accept what your brother brought, but I'm not going to accept what you brought. And this is something which we need to know because we were talking about it in Sunday school, right? The ways that we impose our way of thinking, our human way of thinking upon God. And one of the ways that we can impose our human way of thinking on God is that we can say, oh, God just gives them everything because he likes them and God must not like me. As if we're dealing with a father who plays favorites or as if we're dealing with um, a, a system that chooses winners and losers. And we can relate to that system better, right? Because we live in humanity and, and, and humanity is unfortunately a system of the people in power choose winners and losers. Our government is in the business. It shouldn't be, but it's in the, go- the business of choosing winners and losers all the time in private business. Uh, private businesses uh, have a track record of choosing winners and losers all the time. And many parents, unfortunately, uh, will play favorites with their children. Um, we should not. Uh, and if you are, you should stop. Um, but it, it is something that happens, right? That we play favorites. And the, this is a very human trait. And so we are tempted to impose that human trait upon God, but we see here immediately that God makes it very clear that he's not playing favorites. This has nothing to do with who Cain is and who Abel is. It has something to do with what Cain brought and the fact that it was not right before God. We'll talk more about that, but what this also implies is that Cain knew this. Cain knew what was expected of him. He did not do what was expected of him. 
And then he got grumpy when God did not accept what Cain wanted to bring rather than what God told him to bring. That'll give you a little bit of a, of a, of a sneak preview for what, what we'll, we'll talk about in another sermon. So the declaration of God is that Cain had done wrong and that he, had he pursued a different course of action, that God would have been just as disposed to accept his offering as he did Abel's offering. If he had done well, he would not have needed to get angry to begin with. So God then counters with the alternative, which Cain was experiencing at that moment. He says, he says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. That word there in the King James literally meaning to be lifted up. The King James gives a good gloss, the idea of being accepted. The idea is you'll, you'll be brought to, to a, a place of wellness, or maybe even your countenance would be lifted up. If you do well, then you don't have to have the long face, right? And then he says, and if you don't do well, sin lies at the door. When you position yourself in your heart to do that which is not right before God, don't be surprised when sin is there to overtake you. If you position your heart contrary to God and to his word and to his design, don't be surprised when your body follows along. Don't be surprised when you will start sinning in body if you allow sin to rule in your heart. Don't be surprised because that's how this works. If you don't do well in heart, sin lies at that door. And sin will be there waiting to overtake your actions if you've already given it a place in your heart. And in this, we are introduced to a principle which becomes paramount in Scripture. That what I allow to reside in my heart inevitably affects what I do. Jesus said it this way, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If I entertain the deceits of sin inside, it is only a matter of time before what is inside comes out in one way or another. And we'll talk more about this in our application, but this is an essential scriptural principle. It is only a matter of time before what is inside comes out. Parents, it's only a matter of time before what's inside your children come out. So if you're seeing the glimmers of something on the outside, find out what's happening on the inside. In your own life, if you're seeing something you don't like on the outside, yeah, good, stop the outside thing. But you've got to figure out what's happening on the inside that's compelling it. Or else it's just going to rear its ugly head, maybe in a different form. I talk to people about the jail, uh, at the jail about this, that many of them are struggling with an addiction that has manifested itself in a socially unacceptable form, namely drugs, alcohol, drinking, and driving, that sort of a thing. But the solution is not to simply replace my socially unacceptable addiction with a socially acceptable addiction so that the law stays off my back and then I just kind of limp through life with some socially acceptable manifestation of my sin, right? The, pro the, the, the goal is to get the problem solved, not just to cover the symptoms. And this theme is one that, again, will become very, very important to Jesus 
and becomes the very foundational root of why the gospel is so necessary, why Jesus has to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Because the best we have, the best we can do is simply discipline our flesh into something that's socially acceptable so that we can feel moral while it's still a manifestation of something inside of us that is not right. That's the best we've got. The best we can do is discipline our flesh, but God offers to fix the heart. And that's what we need. The only way that God will accept us is when our heart is right. So God continues then with this statement. Without changing contexts, God says, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Let me read the whole thing in context. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, there is not a complete consensus about the antecedent to this pronoun him here and exactly what's being said. And this, the reason is because this pronoun is a him. It's a personified pronoun. It's a personal pronoun. It leads us to believe that the him is a person, not a thing. But sin is a thing. So the him here, the only him that could possibly be in this context is Abel. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And in that case, the idea here then is that if Cain does well, then Abel's desire would be toward Cain, and Cain would rule over Abel. And you say, well, what would that mean? And the only way that that would make sense is if we interpret that in light of what we know about the nature of firstborn sons. And the nature of the firstborn son, as God has ordained it throughout history, we'll see this when it comes up particularly with Abraham, his children, Isaac, Jacob, um, is that the firstborn son is the son who receives the birthright and the blessing. And he becomes the next patriarch of the family. He becomes the one through whom the family is directed. And in this case, the promise of the seed having been given already, he would, in theory, be the one through whom the seed, the chosen seed, the Messiah, would then come. And so if Cain is, in fact, the firstborn, then it's possible that what God is saying here is if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't, sin lies at the door. And if you get this right, then Abel's desire would be toward you. In the same way that we saw in the last chapter with the woman, her desire shall be toward her husband, right? The idea there will be that, that there will be a, 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 a drawing toward the, the reality that her husband is, is the head of the home. His desire will be toward thee. So there would be a parallel meaning, a parallel idea here that Abel's desire would be toward Cain and Cain would rule over him, that Cain would in fact be the patriarch of this family if he would but do well because he has the natural right by birthright and by blessing to that position. But God is not just going to give him that position because of his birth order. And we see this later, right? We see this with uh, um, Ishmael and Isaac. We see this with Jacob and Esau. We see that the firstborn is not given a de facto right to be used by God simply because he's the firstborn. If he is a profane and wicked man, then he is passed over. So that's the first possibility here. That's the, the less, um, less agreed upon possibility, we might say. The other possibility here, the one that I've heard more regularly, is that the, 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 unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him. The him and the, the, the idea there is actually sin. 
sin more or less personified here, perhaps as the serpent and um, uh, let me see. I got out of my notes here and I'll see, see if I had anything else to say about this particularly. Yep, good. Okay, um, so the other possibility, this idea that God is personifying sin, perhaps connecting it to this creature that, that Satan uh, came in the form in, the, the serpent itself, and thus warning that sin's desire is toward the heart of man. But if man exercises faith, then he's able to rule over sin rather than sin ruling over him. And that's the idea that is typically given here, as I've read, that unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him, that if you do well, then sin will desire to overcome you, but you will rule over sin, that, that, that sin will have no place Though sin is lying at the door, it will have no capacity to overcome you in your life. And, and that's certainly a possibility. I, I favor the, 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 the former. I favor the idea that, that he's speaking to Cain about Cain's position in the family here. Uh, I think that that makes sense, not just in relation to Cain and Abel, but I think it makes sense as it relates to what um, Satan is trying to do here by destroying the seed and uh, then what Eve will say after, um, after Abel is destroyed and after Seth then is born, where she says that God has given another seed in place of Abel. So we'll talk about that more when we get there. Either way, God and Cain have this conversation. Cain is angry because his offering was not accepted. His countenance fell. God reasons with Cain regarding the nature of his anger. He assures Cain that God is eager and willing to accept him if he will do well. And then he leaves off talking with him. But in the next verse, we find that Cain did not accept God's exhortation. Cain did not repent. Cain did not align his heart with God, with God's plan, with God's system, with God's exhortations, and with God's promises. Much to the contrary, uh, Cain continues upon the rebellious path. And so instead, we read this in verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. So Cain speaks with his brother on an undisclosed day. They're in the field together, and Cain kills his brother, Abel. The sin that had been allowed to reside in Cain's heart, that initially manifested itself simply in giving a, 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 a unacceptable offering unto the Lord for one reason or another, and we'll discuss next time, is it the offering or was it just the heart with which he brought it? giving this unacceptable offering unto the Lord. It did not register with Cain. He did not repent. And so it gave way to greater sin. Sin that, lie, that was lying at the door has now been brought into his heart. And so we see in the very first generation, the fullest reality of the idea that we find in, in Romans chapter 5 the wages of sin is death. The very fullest reality, not even metaphorical, right, comes to pass in, in, its, in its fullest form here. That sin brings death. And in this case, sin brought murder. And so death. The day that Adam and Eve sinned, they spiritually died. The record of life after that day is that every man began to die and now in the very first children of the human race, brother raises hand against brother and slays him, committing the first murder and solidifying the reality 
the depth and the power that sin can have in the human heart if we leave it unchecked. Teaching us the important lessons about how mankind operates under the influence of sin, not just then, but even still until this day. Now, next time we're together, we'll dig into the first spiritual inspection of the events of that day, as I've talked about already. But far be it from us to leave us just with information. Let's take some time to consider a measure of application as it relates to these concepts. In God's warning to Cain, he told them that if he doesn't do well, sin lieth at the door. We're memorizing 1 Peter 5, verse 7 this month. The very next verse says this in 1 Peter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We're warned in this passage that our adversary the devil is an aggressive foe, seeking to destroy, exploiting every weakness. And not only is the devil an aggressive foe, but the very sin nature that is within us aggressively draws us unto sin, unto itself, to indulge its nature rather to indulging obedience to Christ, obedience to the word of God. And to that end, we are called to be sober, clear-minded, vigilant, careful, looking around, ready, because sin is deceitful. Sin is alluring. And if we don't do well, as Cain did not do well, if we step outside of the truths of the word of God, sin is never far away. And that's important for us to remember. That when we step outside of the truths of the word of God, sin is never far away. Oh, oh pastor, you don't understand. I can handle it. I, I see what's going on. I'm perfectly, I'm perfectly aware of my own, my own status and my own standing and where I am and what I need and what I don't need. And uh, there are lines that I've drawn and, and, and those lines are indelible. And yeah, I may flirt with this and I may flirt with that. And I may, I may allow my, my, myself to drift here and there, but that's okay. I'm, it, it's, it's under control, pastor. It's fine. It's under control. Many are the men and women who have not jumped headlong into sin, but they have not put up the protections. They have wandered aimlessly, not through direct intention, maybe just through simple neglect or maybe through overconfidence because they have not been sober, because they have not been vigilant. They have not given the devil his due They have not allowed the warnings of the word of God to resonate in their hearts. They have not protected themselves. And what did our memory verse tell us last month? Proverbs 27, 12. Do you remember it? A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. A man who through foolishness, false assurance, or or simplicity fails to foresee the evil is no less punished when he steps into that evil than the man who jumps headlong. Both of them end up in sin. One of them jumped into sin knowingly. The others wandered through pride, through simplicity, through neglect. But they both ended up in that place. And they ended up there Because they did not, in prudence, foresee that evil when it was still just a kernel in their heart. 
Prudence exhorts us to foresee the evil and hide ourselves, Christian. The call is for us to be proactive and determined in our Christian lives, to direct ourselves into positive virtue, to be quick to believe the exhortations of God's word, which is, in fact, the way of life, to reject the common lies and the pseudo-promises of our deceitful hearts, of the world, the flesh, and the devil, of those things which seek to compel us outside of God's word and into other ways, other truth claims, other ideas, other promises. When the symptoms of sin in my heart manifest, I need to deal with them immediately. I need to deal with them decisively through humility, through repentance. If I need to put up walls in my life, barriers, fences to protect me from things of which I am particularly weak, of which I have a unique propensity, then I need to put up those fences and I need to guard those fences. And I need to let no one come up and say, you need to tear down that fence because that's an unreasonable fence. Well, it might be unreasonable for you, but it's reasonable for me. I need this fence. Yeah, but I can handle it. Well, if you can, thank God. But if you can't, there will be consequences. And so we are called to do well. Is that not what God said? If thou do well, thou shalt be accepted. Align with God's way unto blessing. So what do we do? Well, we read 1 Peter 5, 8. Now let's look at verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So what do we do? We resist the temptations, the allures. We are the prudent man who foresees the evil and hides ourselves. In faith, believing what God's word says, counting his word as more, more important than our necessary bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We read his word, we believe his word. We position ourselves to accomplish his word. We see the propensities in our life, those things that are in our heart, those kernels of sin that would seek to allure us and deceive us. We look at what the world says that is alluring, but is deceiving. We recognize those things. We filter it through the realities of the word of God. And then we hide ourselves. We protect ourselves. We reject the lies. Because the simple pass on and are punished. And may the legacy of our hearts be a legacy of prudence. Where we are not as one who persists in sin with or persist in, un, 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 uh, in foolishness with sin lying at the door. But rather we do well. We read God's word, we learn God's word, we know God's word, and then we do well. We align with it by faith, resisting steadfast in the faith, knowing this, And Peter says the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. What Peter's saying there is he's connecting this exhortation directly to what the diaspora that he's writing to here in 1 Peter is going through, which is great suffering for the faith. But how do we take that idea and place it into our lives? And I think the way that we do that is through the concept that we find in Hebrews chapter 12, that we have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. That you and I are both going through this journey of life. And in it, we are all struggling with various aspects of our lives and various sinful temptations. 
Your temptations may not be my temptations. Your trials may not be my trials, but we're all going through them. We are all struggling. None of us is perfect. None of us has arrived. And so we resist steadfastly in the faith, knowing that we aren't alone in this, that you're not the only one that's struggling with the temptations to sin. You're not the only one that's dealing with uh, propensities and, 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 and difficulties as it relates to your desire to do what you want rather than to do what God wants. You're not the only one that has a sin nature. You're not the only one that, that is weak in flesh. We all have our places of struggle. And so we exhort one another, we encourage one another, and we resist together. That's why we come. That's why we meet. Not so that we, we do not come together on a Sunday so that we can compare ourselves to others and say, wow, everyone has it together. I'm a mess. We come together on a Sunday to remind one another that we're all struggling with a sin nature, but that we're all fighting against it, but that we are all seeking unto Christ. We come together for the encouragement of seeing others that also desire to do what's right and who also are determined to, to, to obey the word of God to find that which is right. And as we do this, we resist steadfast in, fast in the faith. We are a testimony one to another. And we find success in our own lives. And may that be the testimony of our hearts. That through clear thinking, spiritual vigilance, we avoid the dangers and the pitfalls of sin. Not as Cain, who was warned by God, God himself, the very word of God, that he was on a path to destruction because of the nature of not necessarily what he gave, but what he gave said about his heart. And when we see that, when it becomes apparent, when you see something in your heart, don't ignore that. Pinpoint it and say, what is God's prescription to fix it? When the prudent man foresees the evil, he hides himself. May God help us to do the same to the glory of God and our best good. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.